0: Runoff, a crime novel about election fraud, evokes a curious timelessness of classic detective fiction. A noir gym, says Mystery Scene Magazine. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 15. Protesting Too Much. For my next trick, I decided to follow up on the other leads Chow had given me, Feral Collective and Ciudad Verde. I gave Gretchen a call to help with the addresses from the front seat of the galaxy in my parking space in the Tenderloin garage. I'd barely gotten hello out when she rode over me. I read about you shooting the man in South San Francisco, August. And finding the director of elections murdered? What have you gotten yourself into? You can't pick up a paper or watch a newscast without seeing something about you, the killings, or their implication for the upcoming election. I ran my finger along a crack in the galaxy's dash. Is I don't know an acceptable answer? Hardly, but if you're going to be ignorant, may I suggest that you at least pair it with caution? Yes, ma'am. There was a long silence. The receiver was muffled and then unmuffled, and I heard what might have been a sniff. I'm just worried about you, August. Now what can I do for you? I explained about the addresses. I spelled the name of each organization, and Gretchen put me on hold. When she came back, she said, you know, there's a feature on your new cell phone called directory assistance. Yeah, I thought about that, but I figured it didn't include the same tough love butt-kicking I'd get from you. You got that right. I copied the addresses as she read them off, thanked her profusely, and then rumbled out into traffic. Farrell Collective was in a storefront on Polk Street, with all the windows covered by yellowing, fly-specked newspaper. The door had a ruled page from a torn Big Chief tablet laminated onto the wood with about 20 pieces of clear packing tape. So you want to squat a building, was scrawled at the top, with these handy points listed below. Number one, look for a building that appears unused or run down. Number two, find out where the landlord lives. The further away, the better. Number three, break in. Number four, change the locks. Number five, meet your neighbors. Act legit. Number six, don't let the police in unless they have a warrant. The door was locked and no amount of pounding produced a response. Before I got back into my car, I peered in the window through a seam in the newspaper, looking for signs that the collective had followed their own advice in acquiring their headquarters. I couldn't see anything but the backside of a file cabinet with a bug-eyed alien sticker. The offices for Ciudad Verde were on South Van Ness, near 20th Street, in the heart of the Mission District. They were in a converted Victorian, and their door, too, had a note on it. This one was of a more recent vintage, was written in English and Spanish, and was simply thumbtacked to the wood. The English part said the offices were closed so the staff could attend the protest at the Salai's Bakery and urged everyone to join the fun. The Spanish part seemed to say the same thing, but employed verbiage that was a bit more caliente. It appeared I was going to a protest. The bakery was about six blocks north and west, near the corner of 16th and Mission. I'd parked my car in the best illegal spot I could find, next to a fire plug that I'd concealed with a homeless person's abandoned cardboard box, and I wasn't eager to leave it now for the privilege of driving. I resigned myself to hoofing it. Every intersection along the way seemed to have a Hispanic guy pushing a little ice cream cart with oversized bicycle tires and jingling bells. After stiff-arming the first two guys, I caved with the third and bought myself an orange creamsicle bar. I was about halfway through the bar when I heard the chanting. It was in Spanish, and it was being led by a guy with a bullhorn, but my high school language skills weren't up to the translation. The creamsicle was completely gone, and I was gnawing on the wooden stick for the last little bit of juice when the bakery finally came into view. It was a 1960s stucco flat top on a surprisingly big lot. Protesters holding signs that read, Stop Gentrification and La Raza Por La Casa crowded the sidewalk in front. The guy with a bullhorn stood on a stepladder directing the action. A cop had his black and white parked to one side and was sitting on the hood of the car, watching the proceedings with the enthusiasm of an assembly line inspector. Further back, beyond the screen of protesters, I caught glimpses of a figure in black sitting on a lawn chair in front of the bakery. Whoever he was, he was paying even less attention to the protesters than the cop and seemed to be fully occupied scraping mud off the heels of some kind of exotic skin cowboy boots. I injected myself between two parked cars, looking for someone sympathetic to talk to. A Latina, with a kind of figure typically seen only on mud-flap silhouettes, smiled in a friendly enough way, but I couldn't get her to stop her chanting and sign-waving, not to mention bouncing her spiky necklace pendant about an inch from my nose. Eventually, the crush of other protesters moved her back and to the left, and she made a bye-bye sign as she was absorbed by the crowd. I saw another chance when the guy with the megaphone stepped down from his ladder. He passed the bullhorn to a replacement and broke for a 1960s Studebaker Wagoneer to get water from an igloo cooler set out on the tailgate. I snaked along the line of parked cars until I came up beside him. His hair was pulled tight to his skull in a long braided ponytail that hung down his back like a frayed bell rope. His cheeks and chin were divvited with acne scars, and he had a heavy boomerang-shaped mustache that grew longer on one side than the other. He wore an old Ninja Turtles t-shirt with a bleach stain splashed across the front. I waved the creamsicle stick in greeting. My name is August Reardon. I'm with the China Free Press. I wondered if I could talk with you about the protest. I was almost shouting to be heard over the demonstrators. He looked at me sourly for a moment, sniffed, then chugged water out of a thermos cup he held. You've got a credential with a little more gravitas than a popsicle stick? Creamsicle stick, I corrected. And yeah, I do. I whipped out the credential Lisa had given me and passed it over. He looked from my face to the picture and back again. You don't, he started, but I already knew where he was going. I have my stories translated. He squinted some more at the credential. Whatever, he said finally and handed the wallet back. What is it you want to know? Well, first off, what's your name and role in Ciudad Verde? He tried to answer, but the new man on the megaphone fired it up and rent the air with an electrified, Si se puede. Ponytail grimaced and waved his hands. He pointed in the direction of the police car and led me past it to the front lawn of the property next door, Our Lady of Guadalupe Cathedral. We stood on thick-bladed St. Augustine grass behind a squat palm tree, which provided at least a partial screen for the noise. My name is Ernesto Ortiz, he said. I'm the associate director of Ciudad Verde. Can you give me a thumbnail on what Ciudad Verde is all about? Yeah, I could, but how about taking a few notes? I dug out a small notebook and pen. Ernesto O R T I Z, I I said. Associate director. Got it. Okay. Ciudad Verde was formed in the late 90s when rat builders were using loopholes in the city's live-work laws to build luxury loft condos on cheap land in the Mission. This resulted in an influx of yuppies and began what we call the White Blight. It was a virtual colonization. It drove up land prices and rents, forced out blue-collar industries, jobs, and workers. Our organization fights the continued colonization by lobbying to close the zoning loopholes, opposing gentrification projects when they come up before the Planning Commission, supporting alternative affordable housing projects proposed by green developers, and working to hamstring the rat developers and the property owners who sell to them. I wrote down the high points to keep them happy. And the protest here, at the Salai's Bakery, how does that fit into your charter? Ortiz stared at me while he ran the tip of his pinky finger over one wing of his bristly mustache. You didn't do any research at all, did you? I flipped my notebook closed. I can do some now with a rat builder if you'd rather. Relax. I'll give you the scoop, but you really ought to get a little background. This isn't a parade you're writing about. The owner of the bakery is trying to sell the property for another loft condominium development. We're fighting the issuance of permits at the Planning Commission and the Board of Supervisors, but we're also letting the owner know what the people feel about his betrayal of the neighborhood. Who is the owner? Ortiz stared at me again. I put up my hand. Apart from someone named Salais, that is. The legal owner is Rosario Salais. She ran the bakery for years, but she's not the problem. It's her son, Maurice. Now that she's too old to manage the business, he's convinced her to sell out to one of the loft developers. But if she's reached retirement age, maybe she needs the money. What would you have her do instead? Ortiz shrugged. She's got options. Sell the business intact to keep the jobs in the neighborhood, or sell it to one of the green developers. NHDC, for instance. They've proposed a project to build 30 units of affordable housing on the site. Ortiz permitted himself a sour smile. Another angle you might want to research is Maurice Salais. You'll find he's a defrocked priest from this very parish. He pointed down at the St. Augustine grass. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I'll give you a little hint. Sex scandal. There was nothing in that for me. I let my eyes wander past Ortiz, and I saw the Latina with a hot bod approach the cop and tug at his shirt sleeve. She smiled and said something to him, and he slid off the hood of the car to follow her. I looked back at Ortiz. I needed to get the conversation on to the election. And this permit fight at the planning commission, I said. How's it going? It's a war of attrition. The last time the project came up for vote, our ally succeeded in requiring a number of changes in the proposal. The developer has gone back to incorporate them, But right now, we don't have the votes to kill the project outright. We wouldn't be holding this demonstration if we did. But if Padilla wins the runoff, Ortiz smiled again. That's a different story. He's promised to change the zoning laws and completely shake up the planning commission. The project will be stillborn the day he comes into office. And how much would your organization be willing to do to ensure Padilla's election? Ortiz frowned. What do you mean? Everything we can, of course. You have heard the allegations of fraud surrounding touchscreen voting in the general election, haven't you? At first, I thought the surprised look on Ortiz's face had to do with my question. Then, I felt the pile driver land between my shoulder blades. I made an oofing noise and was flung face down on the lawn. Ortiz had to dance out of my way and my forehead crash-landed about an inch from the toe of his hiking boot, my notebook, pen, and half the contents of my pocket spilling out on the church lawn around me like treats from a piñata. I tried to turn over, but someone's shoe came down on my back, pinning me to the ground. Ortiz's feet went away from view. Reardon, said a voice above me. We know what you do and who you're working for, and you're not welcome at this event. You got me, man. The shoe mashed further into my spine. I said, (coughs) I got you, a little breathlessly. Good. The shoe lifted off my back, and a hand came under my collar and yanked me to my feet. Here's a little extra something to help you remember. I had about a split second to register that my attacker was a young guy with a backwards baseball cap from the Green Party event at New College. Then I was more concerned about the fist coming at my mouth. I twitched my head to the side and hooked my left arm under the one that still grasped my collar. His punch spread my ear instead of my teeth. It stung like hell, and I felt a white-hot fury blossom inside me. I jerked him close and landed an uppercut to his diaphragm that lifted him off his heels. I burrowed in and launched another one with even more behind it. And again. His hand fell away from my collar, and he slumped onto my arm, and I knew I was holding him upright for the sole purpose of beating the shit out of him. I grunted and piled another one in. I don't know how long I would have kept at it if I hadn't heard a voice at my ear. It was calm and low, but strangely penetrating. You've had your eye for an eye. Let him go. I flicked my gaze to the right and saw the guy with the exotic cowboy boots standing beside me. I took a deep breath and broke the clinch. The kid with a backwards baseball cap sloughed from my arm to the ground, holding his stomach. He was struggling to get his breath, while at the same time cursing me in a hoarse whisper. Ortiz stood about ten yards away, at the edge of the sidewalk. He looked at me like I'd crawled out of the hatch of an alien spacecraft. Cowboy boots bent to the ground and began picking up my notebook and the things that had fallen from my pockets. Ernesto. He called to Ortiz. Get over here and help Diego. Cowboy Boots stood up. Come on, amigo, he said in an undertone. Time to get going. Neither of us is welcome here. You have been listening to Runoff, a book hard-boiled great James Crumley described as a smart, funny, spooky, often touching, always entertaining ROMP. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com.